millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome everyone to episode 70 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always, with the exception of last week, is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing? Hi, good. Uh, yeah, I had a week off pulling you into line is apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I don't think it sounded like you weren't up to too much trouble, which is good to hear and yeah, good to be back. I made it through, yes, and it's good to have you back. We uh, got some new artwork happening too, which I think um, everyone seemed to like, so that was good to hear. Yeah. We did a little poll on the Facebook group the other day. Uh, We had some uh, feedback that the intro song was a little bit long, (laughs) which we hadn't heard in the past couple of years, but... um, uh, everyone uh, seemed to think it's it's not and wants us to keep it. Well, about 95% of people anyway. So uh, sorry to those of you who don't like it, but um, we will uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, but we are, by popular demand, <laughs> we're going to remove some of those uh, ASMR-type <laughs> coffee sounds in the interludes there, Chloe, because they, uh, <laughs> they weren't too popular. But uh, thank you all for your feedback. We really appreciate it and we'll always listen to it and uh, and do our best to improve things as we go. And we've also got some thank yous to some very special Patreon supporters this week, Chloe. Yes, and we're still making our way through the people from December and January. So thank you so much, everyone. We've, like I said a few times, we've been seeing you come through and we really appreciate your support. So thank you so much and welcome to Maxi Manzuko, Bronte Mosher, Samantha DeJersey, David Clifton, Paula, Katie Jane Rogers, Oppers, Scott Rayner, Twana De Cruz, Terry Allen, Patrick Stace, Krista Bugley, Misha and Jake, Janelle Dunlop, and James McNaughton. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. And we do have a new Patreon episode that will probably be out now uh, if I've edited it in time. And it's a special edition one on Mark Chopper Reed. So go and check that out if you haven't already. That'll be a good one. The case we are discussing today contains extreme violence and discussion of drug use. Some of the content is difficult to hear. So as always, we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today, we've got part four of the Melbourne gangland killings. No preamble needed. We all know where it's at. So let's get into it. Twenty second of December two thousand and three, Atrium Bar, Crown Casino, 
Melbourne. It had been 10 days since Graham Kinnebra had been gunned down outside his home and Mick wanted to clear the air. Bring that friend of yours if you can, he asked Benji, and Benji had done so. CCTV would be everyone's friend this evening as Benji, wearing a black cap and Everlast T-shirt, and Carl in a red T-shirt with the number 67 on the front, met Mick and his friends at the Baccarat bar. Mick and Benji met like old friends, with Benji giving the much bigger man wearing a peach-coloured bowling shirt a kiss on the cheek as they greeted each other. A few brews and slaps on the back later, and the conversation turned to the monster. Mick was on a mission to find his killers. Benji and Carl said they had nothing to do with it, but they'd heard that Asians, possibly the Chinese, had something to do with it. Mick was unmoved by the suggestion, and word had it, he was next on their list. He said to Carl, you walk away from this and mind your own business, but anything with you, that's your problem. But if anything comes my way, then I'll send somebody to you. I'll be careful with you, you be careful with me. I believe you, you believe me. Now we're even. That's a warning, it's not my war. But three months later, the war came to Mick's doorstep. In the 1960s, the locals called young Mick Gatto the Devil of South Melbourne. If he wasn't rigging pinball machines or breaking into the local fire station, he was stealing money from the handbags of visitors to his parents' home. His father was one of the first Calabrian Italians to settle in the region, coming here in the 1920s. He worked up north as a jackaroo, then back down south to run some illegal gambling games before serving a short time in jail for chasing some blokes with a knife after they called him a wog. He eventually settled into a lifestyle of compulsive gambling and running a fruit and veg store at South Melbourne Market. Sometime later, he wooed the future Mrs Gatto, some 20 years younger than him, from Italy to Australia, where the pair married. Dominic Mick Gatto was born in August of 1955. He was the second of four kids and the family lived on Cecil Street, South Melbourne. Mick and his younger brother John got up to mischief early on, when they weren't being dragged to the seemingly innumerable weekly weddings within the Italian community, Mick, his brother and pals would pilfer things from local shops, rip payphones off walls to try and get to the coins inside, and have dozens of close scrapes with security guards and the local coppers. At the age of nine, having not long smashed the windows out of a Turkish cafe for rigging their pinball machine and depriving him of his winnings, Mick had a good scare put into him by a local copper named Brian Murphy. After being caught in the back of a local bicycle shop doing what one can only imagine, Mick was taken to the station for a stern word and lifted off the ground when his head bumped into a bookcase. He ran home crying all the way, but later thought it fair enough considering what he was doing. The local coppers were tough, but fair. It didn't slow Mick down though. He continued on developing his quick fingers stealing money from his brother's savings box, until his brother broke a billiard cue over his head when he discovered the knot of wood Mick was cleverly popping out and replacing to break into the box each time. School was a constant battle for Mick, whether it was half strangling kids by accident with a length of string or flicking ink onto his teacher's coattails, Mick was a regular in the principal's office. That was until one day, after a number of expulsions and school moves already, 
A particularly pushy headmaster gave Mick one too many prods in the chest with his pointed finger. Young Mick punched the headmaster and fled, which effectively ended his time at school for good, aged 13. It was time to head to work. Mick was sacked from his first job at Coles for tipping over a trolley full of hazardous chemicals by accident. He was left with no choice but to work for his dad at the market. But it wasn't an amicable father-son partnership. Mick's rebellious side enraged his father when one time he arrived home with his first tattoo and copped a flogging for it. The next day, Mick went out and got two more tattoos. The local coppers knew Mick's dad well from the amount of times his eldest son had been dragged in for petty offences. They'd flog him and send him on his way, then show up at the markets for $50 worth of free fruit and veg. Mick's dad served them well, but if Mick was on the register, he'd try and give them half-rotten produce. Mick's time with his dad didn't last long, as they didn't see eye to eye in the workplace, but he ended up going to work for a Chinese man named Georgie Chen. Mick would drive Georgie's truck, unlicensed at the ripe old age of 14, to and from the Footscray and South Melbourne markets, loading up with produce and zipping around on a scooter in the early hours of the mornings. His skullduggery continued throughout his teens amidst a war within the industry at the time which led to a number of shootings. Mick was too young to be involved in any of that, instead sticking to stealing and on-selling produce for a profit and stealing money bags from proprietors to fuel his developing gambling addiction. More run-ins with the law came when Mick drove his truck into a telephone pole one day, wiping out the power of a city block. It cost his dad an arm and a leg to pay for the damages. More colourful characters at the fruit and veg markets would come into Mick's view when one time he accidentally clipped the tail of a truck while zipping past on his scooter. The gate fell on a bloke's toe and he and his mate came after Mick, who punched one of them out. The following day, the pair came to the markets with shotguns searching for young Mick until a group of Italian fruiterers settled the situation. It was around then Mick thought he needed to learn about self-defence. Well into his teens now, Mick had grown from a short and chubby kid to six foot four and solidly put together. He found a boxing gym and began training, thinking he'd do quite well as he'd always oozed confidence and won many fistfights through his natural athleticism. He was wrong. Mick got clipped around the head, punched in the jaw and saw stars so many times it changed him and for the better. It taught him respect and humbled him. He was still confident and wouldn't back away from a fight if provoked, but it instilled a sense of pacifism in some ways. He went from being a smart-assed villain to showing people respect, a change in his demeanour. Mick showed a natural talent and aptitude as a heavyweight boxer and went straight into the pros as a young buck, winning a handful of fights in Melbourne, some even televised. It was at his boxing gym Mick discovered Two Up, an old gambling game where two pennies are thrown up in the air off a flat board and you bet on the heads or tails. Mick started small as a bender, which was like an assistant, eventually working his way up to take a cut of the house's profits. It was here he made a lifelong friend in Ron Bongetti, who was Mick's senior and a partner in Two Up. Mick also met the likes of the Kane brothers, notorious painters and dockers, with Brian Kane being the protection of this particular two-up game at this time. Mick went on to work security in the city, not so much pubs and clubs, but events at the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl, Festival Hall, etc. 
inadvertently made friends with a Hells Angel bikie and even earned the respect of an event attendee named Chopper Reed one evening when Mick stopped a bloke from smashing Chopper over the head with a hammer. Chopper was later quoted as saying there was only one good bloke in Carlton and that's Mick Gatto. Mick didn't remember the event in years to come but maintained a civil acquaintanceship with Chopper despite his less than friendly dealings with some of Mick's mates in later years. Mick enjoyed clubbing, drinking and women in his younger years and things occasionally boiled over and fights occurred. One time, after his brother John was stabbed in the arm, Mick flew over the counter at the police station to attack the guy he knew responsible for stabbing his brother. Mick was able to keep his temper under control the majority of the time, but this time he couldn't and a few police officers copped it amidst him laying into the Turkish bloke who had hurt John. Mick was charged with assaulting police and fined over that incident. The first contract on Mick's life was when he accidentally hit a man while driving his orange Monaro around one night. At first, he thought he'd hit a garbage bin, but when he realised it was a person, Mick reversed back. People with him told him to flee. He was a goner and would be charged with murder. Mick ran to a phone booth and called an ambulance before he left the scene. Turned out this bloke was a well-known painter and docker, and word got around this had been a paid hit. It wasn't. Luckily, Mick spoke with Brian Kane about it, and he was able to clear the air and the contract on Mick's head with his union mates. The police eventually caught up with Mick about it, and he came clean, and the skinny of it was a fine and loss of licence for 12 months. The man he'd hit was drunk, it was dark, and he was wearing dark clothing, and the motorist in front of Mick had just narrowly missed him too. Mick's luck changed for the better when he was in his early 20s. He settled down chasing the girls and landed himself one he'd be with for the rest of his life. Cheryl was intelligent and different to the others, and it took a lot of work for Mick to convince her to give him a shot. He had a reputation at this stage. They'd go on to marry and have four children, Michael, Damien, Sarah and Justin. Sadly, they lost Michael to cot death, or SIDS as it's now known, shortly after he was born. After a three-year layoff, Mick fought a couple more times, but he was making more money at two-up than training and fighting, and the drive just wasn't there. He wasn't training like he used to, and after a few losses, he hung up the gloves. There was just more money elsewhere, but a different kind of danger to a punch in the head. Mick met Graham Kinnebra, a man he called Par and regarded as a father-like figure, Through Graham, Mick began safe-cracking and burgling, pulling a number of successful jobs and making a mound of cash in addition to his illegal gambling. The two-up had now expanded into a card game and later a Baccarat night. But it all came unstuck when Mick was pinched after the theft of some cash and liquor from a golf club one night. He was given 12 months inside Pentridge, and it was here he met a man named Mario Condello, an intelligent man of Italian heritage. Mario was doing six years for conspiracy to murder, drug trafficking and some other things. He and Mick got along well and became lifelong friends. Mick was eventually transferred to Morwell and released after serving his sentence, which had been tough and a real eye-opener for him. He'd also become friendly with a guy named Alphonse Gangitana around this time. The pair frequented nightclubs together, often getting into trouble. But after a close call one evening, when Mick let a shot off at a club and Alphonse tried to shoot a cab driver, Mick started walking his own path. Alphonse was getting a reputation for bashing off-duty police with his crew, a crew Mick didn't want any part of. 
In some ways, the damage was done though, as police seemed to tar him with the same brush, often assuming Mick was there when Alphonse got into trouble again, when he was actually home in bed or running the two up. Alphonse went one way and Mick went another. They were still friends, but just that, not business partners, once the card game they ran together eventually finished up. The old guard changed to the new, with the likes of Brian Kane getting shot dead, Mick was now called in to protect some games, and even some clubs in King Street, places where things occasionally got out of hand. Mick and his expanding crew of associates sorted things out, and Mick developed a good set of negotiating skills, psychoanalyzing the people from many walks of life who liked to gamble, bank managers to murderers, bank robbers to doctors. Another thing that cemented itself in Mick around this time was his dislike for drugs. He'd seen girls he dated in his younger years shooting up, running out of veins as time went on, and in jail the same thing. It didn't do people any good, and he developed a disdain for it and vowed not to venture into that side of the underworld. But everything else was on the board, and Mick's love for gambling is what prevailed. Blackjack, dice in a cage, baccarat, poker, SP bookmaking... You name it, Mick ran the game and also gambled much of his own money away as well. In a dispute with the ATO, which wouldn't be his last, Mick lost their family home and had to declare bankruptcy. A constant was saving nest eggs, then gambling it all away before putting his head down again. In 1992, Mick's father passed away and his business interests began to focus on the Ligon Street area, where many of the gambling games were. He set up S&P and Baccarat operations with Mario Condello, but in 1994, when Crown Casino came in, things changed. All the illegal gambling games were now broken, the penalties too severe, the cops who'd previously attended the games or been paid off by Mick and his crew to tip them off were now gone. Mick was lost and spent a lot of time alongside his constant companion Ron, gambling away thousands in the newly opened Mahogany Room at Crown but it wasn't too long until another opportunity presented itself in the building industry. Mick had always had good networking skills, that much was evident, and he was called in to put these to use when the CFMEU, a Melbourne-based construction union, called for Mick's help during a dispute they were having on a construction site. A veteran ex-police officer, Brian Murphy, who had given Mick a hiding as a kid, was involved on the other side, and Mick knowing Brian from his younger days, thought he might be able to help by having a chat. The pair had a coffee and Brian was happy for Mick to sort the issue out, advising him to ensure the union owed him one for it. And that was that. Mick had always had a budding reputation as a guy who negotiated and sorted a problem. Now the proof was in the pudding and he had a new trade. Hell, other than gambling, he hadn't done anything else to this point in terms of qualifications. But with his network of contacts, an ability to be impartial and act as a mediator, arbitration work in the construction industry made sense. Mick would work with builders and developers to help mediate problems that arose with the unions. For that, he'd get a fee, sometimes a retainer arrangement, sometimes a one-off. Some, including those in a royal commission, implied he was a standover man. But Mick maintained his chequered past shouldn't preclude him from legitimate business. He was paid a fee for his services in mediation and arbitration. He was a problem solver. But Mick's biggest problem of all was yet to come. One half of it he'd met in 2001. The other half he'd met in years gone by at the two-up. A young Carl Williams accompanied his father, George, to the occasional two-up game. Mick knew them on the basis of, hi, how are you, that type of thing, not much else. 
Young Carl was just another face in the crowd of young and old gamblers, but they'd always say good day if they bumped into each other. Mick knew more of him these days, having seen the dangers of what the drug trade was doing to these younger upstarts. He'd seen it with the sons of his mate, Louis Moran, who Mick had met through Graham many years ago. They didn't do business, but shared punting tips now and then. His sons, Mark and Jason, however, were into the drugs. Mick had a lot of time and respect for young Mark, but not Jason. His ratty attitude and hot head had drawn more heat than anyone on the periphery wanted. Now they were both dead, and young Carl, the blonde chubby nobody from the northwest, was said to be behind it. Mick didn't begrudge Carl in many ways for taking his revenge, eye for an eye type of thing, but in recent times, Carl had been doing more and more of his own product. Paranoia was now rife, and he had a crew of hired hands around him willing to do anything for money and poisoning his mind to make it. One of those guys was a young buck Mick had taken under his wing in 2001. Benji Veneman had been introduced to Mick by his friend Steve Kayer and another young associate named Farouk Orman. Mick called him Andrew, not Benji, but the youngster had bravado and dash and was ambitious. Benji had a reputation when Mick met him as a man who killed for money. That was the word. Still, according to Mick, he had no interest in those alleged skills. He was more about the networking and Benji ran his part of town out in the West There was a lot of development out there and he was handy to know should a building problem ever arise out that way. Benji was always landing himself in hot water it seemed and Mick on more than one occasion helped him out of it. Mick says he tried to get Benji labouring work but he didn't want that kind of work. He wanted big money Mick believed, money that he couldn't provide. The pair grew close and it was said Benji did some debt collecting and other odd jobs for Mick and others in the Carlton crew But in the end, it wasn't enough. And then Benji met Tony and Carl, and the rest was history. Mick and his friends had wanted nothing to do with this drug war. But when Graham had been killed, that changed. Now it was personal. This man who he respected had been gunned down at night outside his own home. And for what? He didn't even move in those circles. After Graham's murder, the general consensus was that Carl had organised it. And word had it... Lewis, Mick, Mario, Ron Bongetti or Steve Kaya were next. Mick spoke with Benji, who denied that Carl or he had anything to do with it. Carl wouldn't meet in Carlton when Mick requested Benji to organise this, but he'd do Crown Casino, CCTV everywhere, people everywhere, very little chance of something going wrong. So they all meet, as we covered in the introduction, just before Christmas in 2003. Carl and Benji arrived, Mick, Mario, Steve and Ron were all there too. Carl's denial was met with a stern warning from Mick and afterwards Carl sought the counsel of Benji. Was Mick good for his word? Was that it? Benji was unequivocal in his response. Mick doesn't take shit, Carl. Kill him. Some three months later, after a trip to the Gold Coast and some recent hospitalisation due to a bout of pancreatitis, Benji was up and about and answering his phone again. He'd had it off for some time. Mick called Benji and the pair touched base. Mick, hoping to keep his finger on the pulse, his friends close and enemies closer. He suspected Benji to be the latter at this stage. Benji appeared to still be playing both sides, but it was clear in recent times he and Carl's friendship had become strangely close. Carl and Roberta had broken up by this stage but were still living together somewhat, amicably as could be expected. And on the Gold Coast trip, 
Benji and Carl were said to have sworn allegiances to one another, with Carl promising Benji half of his profits for his protection. Benji was feeling more like a business partner now, not just a trigger man, and pills were indeed being stamped with the letters A and V on them as a sign of respect to him. Perhaps finally, he'd made it as he'd always hoped. Carl, however, still had reservations about Benji's loyalty and avoided one-on-one meetings with him, fearing an ambush. On March 23, 2004, Benji and Carl had appeared in the Magistrates' Court, offering support to Victor Brincat, who was appearing for matters related to his innumerable pending charges. Benji, who was driving around a borrowed $200,000 Mercedes at the time, got into the car and took a call from Mick. His phone had been tapped until recently, but this Mercedes was bugged too, and police would later learn Mick had called him. Mick was surprised to see Benji arrive so quickly after the call. Benji had arrived within minutes, double parking his Mercedes out front and waltzing into La Puchella in his usual attire, a T-shirt, cap and three-quarter length tracksuit pants. Mick was wearing a suit. At a table on a raised platform towards the back of the restaurant, Benji joined Mick and some associates, including Ron Bongetti and Farouk Orman, at the table for a chat. They'd all been eating lunch when Benji suddenly gave Mick a gentle kick under the table and motioned with his head for them to go and have a quick chat. Mick said no worries and got up, leaving his phone with Ron and Benji, his car keys on the table. Mick began making his way outside as it was a nice day, but Benji headed to the back of the restaurant. Mick followed, thinking nothing much of it, as he'd had many chats out the back before. The pair went down a narrow passageway and into a back room, where they had a short conversation. It began with Benji taking offence to the word on the street that Mick still thought he was involved in Graham's murder. Well, I have to be honest with you, that's what everyone's saying, Mick said. But I wouldn't do that. You're a friend of mine and I wouldn't harm anyone that's a friend of yours, Benji responded. Well, Dino, Dibra and PK were your friends and you fucking killed them, Mick went back. Benji snarled. They were fucking dogs, mate. They deserved it. Mick then told Benji he didn't want him coming around anymore. He didn't want him in their company as he simply couldn't be trusted. And that's when Benji turned, the look on his face and in his eyes changing with the flick of a switch. Benji then said words to the effect of, we had to kill Graham, we had to, fuck him and fuck you, before pulling a long snub Smith & Wesson revolver out of the back of his pants. Mick, who'd been carrying a twenty-eight in his pockets for some time now since all of this gangland war nonsense began, didn't have time to reach for it, but just react. He lunged for Benji, who let off a shot, the bullet whizzing past Mick's ear. The significantly bigger man grabbed hold of Benji's hand, clasping the younger man's grip on the gun, his finger still on the trigger. Using brute force, Mick turned the smaller Benji's hand towards himself and three more shots went off, all at point-blank range. One bullet went through the main artery in Benji's neck, another through his spinal cord and a third into his head near his right ear. The pair fell over, Mick on top, and he took Benji's gun as the young hitman lay dead on the floor blood pooling around his head and a gurgling sound evident from his mouth. Mick, stunned by the sudden turn of events, wasn't sure what happened at first. He thought he'd been hit. He staggered out of the back room and down the hallway and grabbed the Lapuchella's owner, saying, you'd better ring the police and an ambulance. He just tried to kill me and he's finished second best. Mick also had a friend take his 28 handgun away. And while he maintained a calm exterior, managing to call his lawyer, his business partner and wife after this, 
His heart was beating 100 miles per hour, he'd later say. When police arrived on the scene, a cool Mick Gatto, under legal advice, told them that he'd acted in complete self-defence and hadn't done anything wrong, but didn't have anything further to comment on at this stage. He was confident after police had done their forensic tests, he'd be free to go. But that wasn't the case. In the meantime, word of another gangland shooting had hit the press, and Carl and Roberta arrived on scene promptly. Carl was caught in the crosshairs of a media frenzy when he arrived, shaken at the sudden news that his bodyguard, best pal and business associate had been killed. He fled on foot down the road, hitching a ride with a motorist he knew to escape the barrage of reporters chasing him for a comment. Carl and Roberta spent the evening mourning the loss of their closest friend and ally. Carl drowned his sorrows in a bottle of whiskey, Roberta, in tears as the memories of someone she held so close were now all that she had left. The news of Andrew Veneman's shooting was all over television that night and in the papers the following day. And Mick Gatto was surprised when police, following their preliminary investigation, charged him with murder. Mick spent the following 12 months on remand, no bail, awaiting trial for something he claimed was pure and complete self-defence. Police and prosecutors had another theory. In short, it involved Mick actually luring Benji to the restaurant, that Benji hadn't meant to kill him, hence him leaving his car keys, and he hadn't even been armed when he attended. They suggested the 38 long snub was in Mick's possession, not Benji's, with Benji having been under such scrutinous surveillance as one of Piranha's main targets, he actually hadn't been strapped in their most recent brushes with him. Lead investigator Boris Buick also formed the hypothesis that a cover-up shot had been fired to make it look a certain way and a final execution shot fired as Benji lay dying on the floor. Police and prosecutors also alleged that Mick's clothing had Benji's blood on it, the pattern contradicting Mick's version of events, and that they'd discovered a body bag in Mick's car boot. So all of this self-defence story was just a cover for a lure and execution. After all, why would Benji arrive in the middle of the day, double park, leave his keys with no exit strategy if he planned to kill Mick? Where was he going to go? What was he going to do? It didn't make sense. Then again, it didn't have to. Mick didn't believe Benji had intended to kill him at first, but he'd decided to during their conversation and had snapped. It'd take some time, over 12 months, as we said, of Mick being locked up in solitary confinement for 23 hours per day before he stood trial for Benji's murder. Meanwhile, the gangland war raged on outside, and he was unable to protect his family in the manner in which he may have liked. Mick lost 30 kilos in jail as he undertook a shadow boxing training regime and his usual diet was shelved for Port Phillip prison chow. The details of the trial are well published for those who will want to look into it. The upshot of it was this. Mick's defence team, headed by QC Robert Richter, didn't have to prove anything. They put the self-defence story up and it was plausible, but they didn't have to prove it. The prosecution, however, had to prove their theory – that it was murder and not self-defence. And that came down to who brought the gun in, Mick or Benji. They only had the alive person's version of events. Benji couldn't tell his side, obviously. And there were no witnesses. Benji had been unarmed in court that morning. Where did he get the gun from between then and lunchtime? He had a history of carrying and using firearms and a history of violence. This all played out, as did a rigorous cross-examination of Mick himself, who rather strangely took the stand, only the second client of Robert Richter's to ever do so in such circumstances. 
Mick was unflappable at trial and maintained a steady version of events and didn't attempt to hide his mistrust or loathing of Andrew Venyman at the time, admitting he thought him to be involved in his friend Graham Kinnebra's murder. In the end, the judge summed it up for the jury. Who had the 38? If the prosecution could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Mick Gatto had the 38, produced it and shot Benji, they'd have to convict him of murder. If not, they'd have to acquit. On the 15th of June 2005, after 24 hours of deliberation, the jury returned to read their verdict. A usually calm and collected Dominique Gatto showed his first signs of emotion when they read out the two words he and his family had been waiting for, not guilty. Mick walked from court a free man, back to his family and friends. But in the meantime, since he'd been in jail, the war had raged on and that list of friends had grown shorter and those left had pressing troubles of their own. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The day after Benji Venuman's wake, Carl struck back. With his right-hand man six feet under and his previous trigger man and driver behind bars for the Marshall murder, Carl had to look elsewhere for services, and he found them in the form of a veteran armed robber and underworld stalwart, Keith Four. Keith, who in part later served as inspiration for the character of Keithy George in the dramatised movie Chopper, had served many years in jail, His grandfather stood over cocaine dealers, his father was a safecracker, and he was an armed robber and killer. He'd also been a slaughterman, an abalone sheller, and most notably a painter and docker. He'd served lengthy prison sentences for manslaughter charges in both 1976 and 1987, amongst numerous armed robbery charges too. Throughout the 70s in Pentridge, Keithy was a powerful force, and all of the painters and dockers inside backed him. He and his crew, KGB they called themselves, Keithy George's boys, were after the famous painter and docker Bill the Texan Longley. They were responsible for over 100 assaults and stabbings during this time. But they had one major problem, Chopper Reed. His overcoat gang, known for wearing long jackets even through summer to conceal their weaponry, were staunch protectors of Bill Longley. And it was well known to get to Bill, you had to go through Chopper. Chopper said Keith was born an imbecile and had been losing ground ever since. Keith despised the loud-mouthed bullshit artist Mark Reed and was angered by his fictitious depiction in the dramatised movie of his life. But now he was out, and this was his chance to nudge his head back into the scene and for good coin, coin from Carl and allegedly his kingpin mate, Tony. He'd organised his brother Noel and a young ex-kickboxing upstart named Evangelos or Ange Gusis for the job. It'd be public, brutal, but easy. Their target was a sitting duck. Lewis Moran had done everything he could to get bail on his recent drug charges, and he and his associate, Bert Rout, had succeeded. 
A broken man amidst a seemingly crumbling criminal family dynasty, Lewis cut a sorry, arthritis-riddled figure, surrounded by punting slips and pots of beer at the Brunswick Club. He and Bert had frequented the place every day since their release. Despite police offers of protection and advice to break up his routine, Lewis knew there was a target on his back, but the creature of habit within won out. When their local pub, the Laurel in Ascot Vale, had become too trendy, the Brunswick had offered a blue-collared sanctuary to the pair. Bert didn't even know why he hung around anymore. He hardly even liked Lewis, but he stayed for the beers nevertheless. Lewis's days were numbered, and he knew it. The veteran crook, crippled by grief and in the literal sense, spent his days checking the form guide, placing bets, sinking pots, and watching TV chefs at night. Carl had even called him out at a local TAB in recent times. Lewis hadn't the will to respond. On March the 31st, 2004, Lewis had lunch in Middle Park with a few mates from his days in the racing industry. He retired to the Brunswick, easily spotted through the window from the street, with Bert for a few brews. Around 6pm, as Lewis stood by the bar, half a pot and a betting slip nearby, he turned to see two balaclava-wearing gunmen storm into the venue. Looks like we're off here, Lewis said to Bert, but while his words seemed to hint at acceptance of what was to come, his body had other ideas, and Lewis took off down the passageway, past the toilets and into the gaming area. And Gooses, the younger and more nimble of the pair, took off after Lewis and promptly caught up. In a feeble attempt to slow the significantly younger and fitter man, Lewis pushed a stool down, which Gooses simply leapt over, before levelling a shotgun at Lewis. But the gun misfired. Lewis, who momentarily ran into the venue manager, Sandra Sugars, took a final breath before Gooses withdrew a handgun from his jacket and shot him twice in the head. Bert Rout was also shot. He survived and wasn't an intended target, but simply ended up in the crossfire. He passed away some years later, the wounds he received contributing significantly to the deterioration of his health in the latter years of his life. Lewis's funeral, days later, was attended by only a few, one being a distressed Judy Moran, who'd watched every man in her family, except for her brother-in-law Tuppence, be killed in recent years. Tuppence had now fled the city, should someone want to finish the Moran line of men altogether. No pallbearers put their hands up, and Lewis's cheaply constructed coffin was wheeled out on a gurney. This was a real low point for the Piranha Task Force, who'd been unable once again to stop the bloodshed they knew was coming. The wanton killings, as described by Simon Overland, had reached new depths of stupidity. All of their surveillance and forensics had amounted to nothing, with a weak case against Mick Gatto all that was pending. Meanwhile, the crooks on the street continued to knock each other off, while cartoonists depicted Vic Pohl's work as a toothless piranha swimming through a sea of dead gangsters. And while Lewis Moran's death spelled the end of the Moran crime family as a force in the criminal underworld, he wouldn't be the last man named Lewis to have his name written in the bloody history books of the Melbourne gangland killings. Lewis Kane wasn't always Lewis Kane. He was born Adrian Bly and later went by the name Sean Vincent. He was from Tasmania and had few family ties, apparently detesting his father and not really knowing his Queensland-based mother. A self-proclaimed martial arts expert who was later found to have only done a couple of classes, he was, nevertheless, fit and extremely violent. 
Lewis entered the army when he was young, but went AWOL and was discharged. His interest in weaponry and special forces tactics remained, but in the background, as he became a courier and got into drug dealing. One evening in 1988, Lewis attended a nightclub in Melbourne called Laser or Lazar. He was catching up with a bouncer he knew and a girl he'd previously met, but things turned ugly when after a number of drinks, Lewis and a man named David Templeton had a disagreement. David, who was an honest, law-abiding and hard-working 34-year-old man, had a few too many to drink and probably deserved nothing more than a clip around the ear. Instead, he encountered the violent Lewis Kane. David, in an act of stupidity, took the badge of an off-duty female police officer at the pub and proceeded to impersonate being a police officer himself. He and Lewis had a cordial conversation earlier, but had butted heads over a girl who they both liked. Lewis got loud and aggressive, as was his way. David complained to a bouncer, who then asked Lewis to leave. Furious at the betrayal and that David had gotten his girl, Lewis waited for him to come out some 20 minutes later. He followed David in a cab, finally catching up with him in Spencer Street, where he administered a merciless beating to him. Tragically, David Templeton died on the footpath that night. And a bragging Lewis Kane, who returned to the club, bragged about beating up the bloke who'd taken his girl and noted that you don't mess with the Wing Chung. He was tracked down, arrested and charged with murder before sunrise. Lewis was convicted and served 10 years for the brutal crime and he relished the dog-eat-dog turbulent nature of jail. He was violent when he went in and when he emerged, he was cold-blooded and looking for work, right around the time Carl Williams was actively recruiting hitmen. Lewis, with his piercing eyes and football player good looks, carved out an imposing figure and walked with a cocksure strut. It was enough to impress lawyer Zara Gard-Wilson, who had met Lewis through George Defteros's law firm, who she worked for, and had represented many of the colourful characters throughout this saga. Zara was taken by the hard man's gaze and his attitude, and they'd entered a feverish romance in recent times, were living together and contemplating marriage. Lewis had been connected with the Carlton crew through these legal connections, and he'd spent some time doing bagman work, but like most of these guys, wanted more. On the 6th of May 2004, Lewis Kane had dinner with Carl and Roberta Williams. The subject of their discussions at dinner, or either side of this meeting, isn't known for sure, but police suspected Carl had hired Lewis for an upcoming job an important one to ensure all of the big players were taking out of action, now Lewis Moran was gone. Reprisal for his murder was something Carl wanted to avoid, and the big man in Carlton, now calling the shots with Mick Gatto behind bars, was Mario Condello. Lewis had been keeping tabs on the dapper former lawyer and believed he was the man to get the job done, for a good fee of course. Carl and allegedly Tony were paying the best. But getting to Condello was more than a one-man job. Lewis needed reinforcements, so Carl suggested his most recent and successful hit crew, Keith Four and Ange Gooses. Keithy, who apparently collected his $140,000 payment for Lewis Moran's murder, was keen for more work and more money. He was also keen, police allege, on manipulating both sides of the fence to his advantage. On the 8th of May 2004, Lewis Kane met with Keith Four and Ange Gooses at a Carlton pub. The trio had a few beers, seemingly quite friendly and presumably talked about the upcoming job. 
Unbeknownst to Lewis, though, police alleged that Keith had had a meeting sometime earlier about the job, and the job had changed, at least for him and Ange it had anyway. After a few brews, the trio headed off from the pub, hopping into a nearby four-wheel drive. Lewis got into the back seat and was alert and ready for the job, having done a line or two of coke to amp himself up. Keith got into the driver's seat, young Ange in the front passenger seat, turned around and fixed a gun on Lewis and shot him under the right eye, killing him instantly. Keith and Ange drove to a nearby dead-end street in Brunswick and dumped Lewis Kane's body out on the road, making no attempts to conceal it. Both Keith Four and Evangelos Gusis were later charged and convicted of both Lewis Kane and Lewis Moran's murders, and the police theory was that Keith had shopped the initial hit from Carl back to Mario Condello, who had upped the price and ordered Lewis Kane done as a reprisal for Lewis Moran, and most importantly, a message as to what would happen to anyone who came after him. That theory has been disputed by many over the years, but what we know for sure is that the two men involved in the killing itself were charged and convicted. If the police thought it was Carl organising all of these hits, they may have thought it had ended with the murder of Louis Moran, but it hadn't. Now, only five weeks later, there was another murder, and there'd be more to come, the next one just over a week away, and it again would drag Victoria Police down to an all-new low. Carl had learned that Louis Moran had put out a contract on him some time ago, but only offering $40,000 for the job didn't inspire much enthusiasm. Why take that when Carl was paying $150k? One man Lewis had allegedly offered the contract to was a bloke named Terence Hodson, and it was now common knowledge thanks to a leaked police file circulating through Melbourne's underworld. Terence Hodson was originally a carpenter and had come to Perth in Australia from Britain with his wife Christine in 1974. Terence was always trying to make a buck on the side, coming up with insurance-related scams to produce overinflated bills on claim-related work. He got into dealing cars at one stage, but after moving to Melbourne, saw more money in dealing drugs. On September of 2003, on grand final eve in Victoria, Terence had been arrested alongside an allegedly corrupt drug squad officer for stealing a large sum of cash from a drug house in East Oakley. Detective David Meeshel had been arrested alongside Terence at the scene. Meeshel tried to reason that he'd been on the job before throwing a punch at an arresting officer and getting a chunk taken out of his leg by a police canine, which forced him to give up. Now David Meeshel and Terence Hodson were facing serious charges, but they weren't the only ones. Detective Sergeant Paul Dale had also been implicated by Terence Hodson as the mastermind of the robbery. He couldn't make it on the day, but still wanted his cut, Terence alleged. Detective Dale steadfastly denied his involvement, but was charged and also due to face trial. Detective Meeshel had already had his trial and copped a lengthy sentence for it too. Twelve years he'd have to serve, while Terence, who'd been on the books as a registered police informant for a couple of years, was getting around with the target on his back awaiting his trial. Terence's police file had mysteriously disappeared from police headquarters not long after his arrest. Internal affairs investigating the matter suspected Paul Dale. They had to prove it, but they wouldn't get the chance. On the 16th of May 2004, two of the Hodson's children returned home to find their parents dead inside the house. They'd been executed with gunshots to the backs of their head. They'd been kneeling with their hands tied behind their backs at the time of their murders. 
Charges against Paul Dale for the burglary were dropped as it was no longer possible to get testimony from Terence Hodson. But now Paul was the prime suspect in the Hodson's murders. He clearly had motive, being the one to obviously benefit from Terence's death. These allegations were again steadfastly denied by Paul Dale as he engaged a barrister named Nicola Gobbo for advisory purposes upon being charged with the murder of Terence Hodson down the track in 2009. Another man was also charged with both the murder of Terence and Christine in 2009 and his name was Rodney Collins. He was a hitman serving a life sentence at the time in 2009 for the murders of Dorothy and Ramon Abbey in 1987 He's also been connected to Brian Kane's murder in 1982, amongst many other murders. We spoke a bit about Rod Collins in the episode on Prue Bird, but the similarities in the Abbey and Hodson murders were quite striking and led to the reopening of the Abbey case and subsequent conviction of Rodney Collins. So how does all this tie back to the gangland killings? Well, Rodney Collins, it turned out, had connections with Carl Williams. He'd been asking Carl for work, and Carl had kept him in the back of his mind for an appropriate job. Rodney had come to know Carl through his girlfriend, a woman who happened to be the mother of Danielle Maguire. Danielle had moved on from her alleged affair with Mark Moran after his death a few years ago, and had since been seeing Tony Mockbell. The connections were there, and Rodney Collins had the violent history to prove he was certainly capable of the act. And it was the police's theory that a corrupt Paul Dale, who'd formed a relationship with Carl Williams over the years through his work in the drug squad, had used him as a go-between, organising the job on Dale's behalf and paying Rod Collins $150,000 to get it done. But Christine Hodson wasn't part of the contract. Rod had crossed the line by involving the partner, a big no-no in the criminal world. Charges against Paul Dale and Rod Collins, however, wouldn't stick, For obvious reasons we'll get to later in this tale, but for now, back at the present time, one thing was clear. Two more people had senselessly lost their lives in the struggle for Melbourne's amphetamine trade. Rod Collins, who was still a free man at this stage, wasn't done killing, and Carl Williams wasn't slowing down, and he wouldn't until he was stopped. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Police had seriously stepped up their surveillance in an attempt to get Carl Williams off the street. Take Carl down and end the bloodshed was their theory and their latest intel suggested he was at it again. With the failed hit on Mario Condello and the dispatch of Lewis Kane, Carl had again lost another couple of members of his hit crew, but there were plenty of guys lining up for work considering the money he was promising, even if he wasn't ultimately paying it all. The problem was, Carl's pool of hired hands had become diluted. 
and his most recent pair of helpers consisted of one of his cousins, Mick Thornycroft, who was battling a heroin addiction at this time, and a career criminal named Sean Sonnet. Sonnet and Thornycroft bickered leading up to the job they'd been hired for, with Sonnet being furious at his supposed driver for shooting himself up full of junk. He was useless to him now. Drinking or smoking dope would have been dumb, but better than this. Thornycroft could barely hold himself together. On the day of the job, Sean Sonnet switched Carl's drug-addled cousin out for an old school friend of his, Greg Hildebrandt. He'd be the driver now. Unbeknownst to everyone, Sonnet, Thornycroft and Hildebrand were being listened to by Piranha in the weeks prior to this day, being June the 9th, 2004. Carl had become sloppy, and his usual method of dropping contact with his crew who were about to commit a job a few days beforehand, after having regular contact with them prior, was now well and truly being spotted by the police. Carl was at his mum's house, nursing a hangover and about to get up for one of Barb's egg, bean and chip cook-ups when the police stormed the place and arrested him. Only 10 minutes earlier, Piranha had arrested Sean Sonnet and Greg Hildebrandt around the corner from a prestigious home in North Brighton, a home with a lot of security and occupied by a man named Mario Condello. The pair's stolen Mazda 626 had a drum of accelerant in it they'd planned to use to torch the vehicle after their getaway. On their persons, the pair had handguns, balaclavas and two-way radios. Michael Thornycroft was also arrested out in Monturna and all four men were charged with conspiracy to murder Mario Condello. It was the last morning Carl would ever have as a free man. The killing had finally caught up with him. Piranha now had their biggest name off the street and hoped that after this, the bloodshed would stop. Mario, who'd been tasked with running things since Mick Gatto was in jail awaiting trial, was comfortable with the job of steering his crew out of this mess. He'd do what he had to do, like he'd always done, in the swift Calabrian way. It was a way Mario had taught himself, unlike others, who might have been born into it. Mario Condello was born in April of 1952, He was born in Australia, but his father was originally a prisoner of war who'd been captured in Libya during World War II and sent to Warrnambool to work. His folks returned to Italy after having Mario and their second child before having a third in their homeland and then returning to Australia thereafter. The family settled in North Fitzroy with the kids all speaking fluent Italian. Mario would keep up his homeland connections throughout his life, often through illicit business dealings and then his cultural disposition. Mario went on to do a law degree at the University of Melbourne. He was said to be a very intelligent, articulate and nice-looking young man with a lot of potential. But somewhere along the way, the allure of the gangster lifestyle was more attractive to Mario than the root of legitimacy. Mario loved the Godfather movies and was often quoting lines from them, He built up and orchestrated a web of arsons, bashings, frauds, standover and loan sharking jobs, organised marijuana crops, dealt heroin and most notably laundered money through alleged family ties with Melbourne's Honoured Society. He became a family man too, got married and had children. Mario was charismatic, well educated and could have become a prominent figure in legal and political circles as he aspired to do but secretly mortgaging up old Italians to run his loan-sharking arrangements and standing over people for huge interest repayments was more profitable in the short term. Known for his ruthlessness, Mario was averse to hands-on violence himself, however. He hired heavies to do that for him. 
He couldn't stand the sight of blood, but one time apparently showed up at a torture he'd organised wearing a leather mask before walking around the room and watching as the torture took place. The incident led to his jailing for six years, as the brother of the tortured man informed on many of Mario's lawless endeavours. The former lawyer was disbarred and went away for six years. While inside, he met Mick Gatto. The pair formed a strong friendship in the years to come. Mick was inside now, though, and Mario had the reins. It was a task that sat quite lightly on his shoulders. He had no issues mixing it with the elite, leading his crew out of the abyss and taking things to the next level. He was the very image of an Italian mafia boss, despite Mick Gatto being labelled the Don, a moniker he wasn't a fan of and had never used. It was more befitting of Mario. But now Carl had been arrested, it was back to business for Mario. What that business was exactly, we don't know, but according to him, it certainly wasn't the drug trade, which he despised, despite having been convicted of drug charges in the past. He said he was glad the bloodshed was over, and he and his crew had no ill feeling or bad blood with the Williams family, regardless of recent events. Mario told crime writer Adam Shand that he knew the assassins were coming, he was simply waiting. Had they set foot on his land, they wouldn't have been able to walk back to their car. But thank God it hadn't come to that. Now everyone could move on. This attitude seemed at odds with the words police alleged they'd picked up on an intercept, which had Mario telling a co-conspirator, until this fucker is put in a hole, there will be no peace. In March, Mario had allegedly organised an arsenal of guns and offered $150,000 per head, 450k in total, to have Carl and George Williams and an unnamed bodyguard in their employ gunned down. The plan was for it to take place in Lonsdale Street. The hitman was to ride a motorcycle and use an Uzi to riddle the trio with bullets, but not hurt any innocent bystanders. Unfortunately, one of Mario's confidants was a police informer, and wiretapped conversations would serve as ammunition, not for the job Mario wanted done, but the prosecution case he'd have to defend against. On the 17th of June 2004, within the fortnight of Carl's arrest, Mario Condello was arrested for conspiracy to murder Carl Williams. While Mario was speaking peace, police and prosecutors alleged he was setting up a triple kill as payback to put a stop to all of this. But unlike Carl, who didn't get bail due to a number of further crimes he was presently being implicated in behind bars, Mario had made bail three times and spent the next year and a half a free man. And during this time, the fear of being gunned down subsided. Mario was confident of beating the charges with his savvy and a heavy legal team behind him. He'd win this one, he felt. The bloodshed had stopped. Melbourne's streets were seemingly safe again as the media attention shifted from the raging gangland war to the fallout and subsequent court trials playing out. Carl wasn't getting out anytime soon and was busy being hassled by piranha detectives behind bars for information about many of the unsolved crimes he likely had knowledge of. Mick Gatto had since been acquitted of murder and resumed his spot at the head of the Carlton table, although they'd shifted from La Porcella now to a more quiet spot to avoid the media attention and Mick would continue to have battles with the ATO in years to come. On the 6th of February 2006, some 18 months after Carl Williams' arrest, Mario Condallo had caught up with Mick Gatto and dined with friends that evening before returning home to his residence in North Brighton. 
It was just before 10pm on this occasion. Mario had abided by the curfew set by the judge when he got bail. He didn't always, but he did tonight. And tomorrow, he'd be standing trial for the conspiracy charges. At least, that was the plan. It wouldn't come to fruition. Whilst pulling into his garage and talking to a friend on the phone, Mario Condello was shot dead in his own garage by a hitman who'd set foot on his land and would indeed make it back to his own car. That hitman, police later alleged, was Rodney Collins. And if that's true, the big question then was, who paid him? Police doubted it was Carl. Locked up, his connections had fizzled and his power had dwindled, and he was busy trying to make deals of his own for himself and his family. It was hard to believe Carl could have financed it. He no longer had the means. Devastated friends speculated it wasn't gangland related, but perhaps made to look that way, opportunistically, was actually retribution for past business dealings gone wrong. Mario had moved a lot of money around and taken his fair share from a lot of people over the years, making a few enemies in the process. Maybe this was closer to the truth. A recent theory published in The Age has police theorising about honoured society members being connected with Mario's murder. But there was one guy back at this time who possibly had the means to make this happen, and like Mario, he too had a day in court booked for just a couple of weeks' time. Also like Mario, he wouldn't make it to court though, but for different reasons. He wouldn't be shot down in his driveway, instead he'd flee to country Victoria, and then on to Greece. Leaving a trail of chaos in his wake, the head of the country's biggest drug syndicate, the company, led Victorian and federal investigators on a chase across the globe as they tried to catch their biggest fish yet, Antonius Saji Mokbel. And we'll pick up at this spot in episode 5, the final instalment of the Melbourne gangland killings next week. As you probably gathered from the abundance of my voice in the latter part of this episode, Chloe did have to take off halfway through our recording for a work-related matter, so hopefully that didn't disturb things too much for you guys. I'll try and come up with a quick happy thought in her absence, and I had a quick podcast recommendation today, actually, and it's called A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole. And uh, as you know, and and many of you guys like to as well, we like to take a little bit of a break from the true crime stuff all the time and and listen to some things from other genres. And this is a a really great one to listen to. It's hosted by a, a guy who I actually know. Basically, he's the ideal person to hijack the the desk at uh, a party, as one of the reviews said. Uh, it's a, a deep dive through some old uh, songs and his rock and roll uh, vinyl collection. And the episodes are sort of broken up into sort of thematic choices. So, um, you know, one episode might be about songs with a prevalent amount of cowbell and uh, another episode might be about songs with birds in the title or bands with the words birds in their name. So they're all kind of broken up thematically. Uh, They're all delivered with a a bit of tongue in cheek and a a nice little bit of uh, personality. It's it's really good. So I'd recommend everyone to, uh, who's looking for a a break from the uh, the dark and uh, mysterious stuff, looking for a good chuckle and likes a bit of rock music to um, go and check out a rock and roll rabbit hole. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email truebluecrime at gmail.com, join our Facebook group, which is called truebluecrime-podcast, and find us on Instagram by searching truebluecrime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page, the link's in the show notes. Over there, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed, 
and get our bonus content if you like. Uh, as I think I mentioned at the start of this episode, right now there should be a special edition episode on Chopper Out, which goes along quite nicely with this series as we've mentioned him quite a bit, so feel free to check that out. Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll be back with you all next time. <music>